All right, well, good morning, everyone. So this morning, we are in chapter five, or lesson nine of this week's uh, Sunday School, going through the book, The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. We're in chapter five, The Spirit of Order. So last week, Pastor Des was taking us through, um, thinking through the book of Acts and the implications for um, the coming of the Holy Spirit and helping us to think through was, was Acts descriptive, right, of events that happened or prescriptive, meaning this is the norm for Christians where they get saved and then they get the Holy Spirit at a, at a later point in time or the baptism of the Spirit at a later point in time. So I think that was really helpful seeing that as descriptive um, in the book of Acts and that leads us then into... This morning's, uh, this morning's lesson and next week's lesson, um, and really, I think, so, you know, like the structure of the book, it's helpful. We, you know, have helped to think, okay, no, it's all, it's all at once in conversion with the Spirit, right? And that, and that is post-Pentecost, the way that we are to understand how does, how does the Spirit work? John? Do have an extra pair of glasses so I could... Yeah, uh, no, I do not. But I will. I will graciously read it for you when we get to that section. <laughs> I only had to print on one side. All right, you know there's a there's a reason. Um, but really, really, this chapter is going to kick us off for really the rest of the book, right? And that's how, and that's how do we think about the spirit and how the spirit applies redemption and works in the life of a believer, right? So it's like, hey, we have the right thinking, right? We, um, in, in regards to the spirit, some of that intro stuff that we did. And now basically chapter five is just going to open up the, the door for what we're going to go over uh, basically through, through the next, uh, ne- next little bit here. So, um, uh, so what we're going to do is this week and next week, we're going to think about the order of salvation and union with Christ as it relates to the Spirit, and then the following week, so next week, then we're going to think about what are the implications of that, specifically union with Christ or um, uh, to be identified with Christ. And so I'll just read a quote here from Ferguson. The central role of the Spirit is to reveal Christ and to unite us to him and to all those who participate in his body. So that's kind of like a helpful overarching theme, right, that we're going to see this week and next week. So, um, and on your your notes, you can see there just another helpful quote from Ferguson, right? So like when we think about union with Christ, what is a way that we can define that? And I think Ferguson, uh, he can say things in a really long way, which is, you know, helpful, but requires like, you know, three paragraphs to explain as, you know, one long sentence. But then he has helpful, like almost shorthand like this. To be in Christ means to share in all that Christ has accomplished, right? And, and we do that through the Holy Spirit. So on your notes, to John's point, we're going to take a look at this little diagram here with a magnifying glass. Under the heading, the spirit of order, the spirit of order. So in the New Testament, we have this already slash not yet tension. And uh, this tension, uh, you'll hear it fall under terms like 
inaugurated eschatology, right? And what that means is it is the beginning of the final fulfillment. And so there's this sense in which the New Testament will talk about things as, as a present reality, something already experienced and possessed. But then it also talks about it in a, uh, um, in a category of future fulfillment, right? And so you'll see like the future tense that will be used. And um, to, to help this, I, I, it's helpful for us to kind of just take a, a, a quick big look picture. So turn with me to Matthew 12. I just want to hit real quick, real quick on this in Matthew 12. And we'll read uh, verse uh, 32. Matthew 12, 32. If I can have a volunteer, or whoever, just go ahead and read it out. I'll read it. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. All right, thank you. So notice that at the end of verse 32. Either in this age, or in what? The age to come, right? And this is going to be helpful to, to help, help kind of think about some of these categories. And this is, this is language that is not foreign to the New Testament. It, it's common. It commonly speaks of this present age or this present world uh, or the future world or the age to come. In fact, Jesus elsewhere in Luke 20 speaks of the age to come as marked by the resurrection where he said, the sons of this age marry, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry. Right, and so we see this idea marked by resurrection in this new age. Or as Paul said in Galatians um, uh, um, 1.4, about being delivered from this present evil age. And But what we find with the coming of Christ, his death, resurrection, and exaltation, or his ascension, is that the end time fulfillment, the age to come, has been brought in. It's been brought near in Christ. And and it is uh, the picture, so I tried to put a picture, and I'm going to read it for, for John's sake. Uh, and for anyone else that can't read, you know, three font. So um, what you can see, and, and really this is a picture, so it's from Sam Waldron's lecture notes, but really he just, you know, spruced up something that Gerhardus Voss did in the 40s in his book, Pauline Eschatology. So on the bottom left, where it says this age in that circle, it says old creation and dominion of Satan. And then in that top circle, it says new creation and kingdom of God with the age to come. And so really, right, at, at first, like you're reading the Gospels and you see it as this age and then resurrection and then age to come, right? So you, you kind of have this linear thought. But now what happens with the coming of Christ is you can see on your notes how the age to come is brought over to the left and where it has this age with the arrow, it's meeting now in this present evil age. So there becomes this tension that we talked about of future realities that are, in a sense, already possessed by us now. And 
Um, what I want to do is just do a couple of passages to help prove this idea. But, but before we go to that, I think one of the things that is really helpful, just turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. So a key text when we talk about the resurrection. And wh- why am I spending time on this? Because it helps lays the helpful groundwork with what we're about to get into. So when, when we think about salvation, salvation has this already not yet aspect to it. So 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to read uh, verses 20 through 22. So anyone, whoever gets there, just go ahead and start reading verses 20 through 22. Perfect. So, notice with me, in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, and then what does it say? The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The first fruits are a sample, if you will, of what's to come, right? And remember, the resurrection is an end-time reality, right? It's a, it's a part of the world to come when we think about resurrection status. But what happened? That was brought in, right? That was, that was brought near. By a man also came, in verse 21, resurrection of the dead, right? And so we see this idea, and then, and then it talks about the federal headship of Adam and Christ as a, as a result of this new Adam, right? There is now a new dominion that has taken place through his life, death, and resurrection, and so, um, and so this, this has massive implications. Uh, turn with me real quick to Colossians, Colossians 3. We can, um, we'll see this with many different aspects of uh, or perspectives related to salvation, but I want to show you one or, or, or two uh, pretty quick. So in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 1, um, if then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, right? So he's talking about something, a a past reality, that you have been raised with Christ, right? But then look with me in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, right? So there's a sense in which, because of our union with Christ, we've already been raised. And we're to walk in newness of life as a result. Then there's this other sense in which it is not in its complete or consummate form, right? That we will be resurrected in full glory, right? And so there's this already not yet tension with our identification with Christ in regards to resurrection, But go back one page to Colossians chapter 1. We even see this as a reality related to the kingdom of God, right? Where in in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. It is a present reality. We are in the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus. But then in Matthew 25, verse 34, this is at the end when the sheep and the goats are divided and the king will say to the sheep, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Right? So there's this sense in which we already possess the kingdom because the king has come and we are identified with him. But then there's this sense in which we will inherit the kingdom when he comes back and when we are raised. And he says to the sheep, when he divides the sheep and the goats, right? Or, or even, even the language regarding salvation, right? Um, you have been saved in Ephesians 2.8. You are being saved in 1 Corinthians 1. Or that we will be saved in Romans 10.9. So, um, so I think that already not yet tension is helpful because it helps put our arms around how should we think about how the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us individually, and then we think about that in community as, as a church. So, to, to, re, to quote Ferguson, in this sense, the present activity of the Spirit, while eschatological, and that, and that just means, you know, the future uh, fulfillment, while eschatological in the sense that it marks the inauguration or the beginning of the last day glory is sub-eschatological in the sense that it is marked by incompleteness, right? That idea that there is this, this end time stuff has started, but it's not really complete, right? Because there's still this, this consummation, the, 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 the full fulfillment. That glory, which God has restored in Christ, the head of the new creation, awaits a yet future event. And so in speaking of the spirit, and this is really to me like, all right, this is like when Ferguson says this, this is outlining like the rest of the book. The activity of the spirit is saving. It relates to salvation. It is communal in the sense that it builds a community of people. The activity of the spirit is cosmic in the sense that it will affect all things. And it is eschatological in the sense that it finds a total fulfillment and completeness that brings the anticipated rest. And this involves the transformation of individuals, the governing of the church and the world, and the bringing in of the new age or of the age to come. So that that right there is outlining basically everything that we're going to cover over the next how many chapters left in, in Ferguson's book. We're going to really take a look at that. And so this week and next week, we're starting with salvation. How does the Spirit apply the work of Christ to us as individuals? So any any questions so far? I know that was kind of like the little the little intro, right? The already not yet. And I'll just apologize for the font. <laughs> All right. All right, well, let's go in then. So the order of salvation. Um, I know sometimes um, I remember uh, becoming a Christian and someone had given me a copy. I think it was uh, Word Pictures TV or Cross TV or something like that. And one of them was on the order of salvation. And, and, and it was helpful in the sense that it helped put together some categories as I was growing up in the faith. Like, okay, all right, help, help me think about the order of salvation. So, on your notes, under the order of salvation, there's an interesting history when we think about salvation and and we think about the history of the church. 
right? In the early church, uh, and we hit on this um, several Sunday schools ago, um, the heavy emphasis on the early church related to what? What was the focus in regards to the councils and big church meetings and people writing creeds? What did it focus on? Yeah, Jesus. Yep. Yeah. Is Jesus, you know, one person? How many natures does he have? Do they bleed together? Are they distinct? Right? Is it real? Is one, you know, right? Yep. All right, good, good. What else? What else? The Trinity. Yeah, the Trinity. That was huge, right? How does the Father relate to the Son? Yeah, um, that was that, that that was really big. Yeah, and then and then uh, and then and then the Holy Spirit, right? Also, how how does the Spirit then relate to the Father and to the Son? So, and that again, that was that was a heavy emphasis. But then, as we move in to the Middle Ages and to the Reformation period, that's where we started to find more uh, definitive statements on this i the, the 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 doctrine of salvation, right? You, you see, in the medieval time period. Um, as theologians were trying to work out the work of Christ, what exactly did the atonement accomplish, right? And so that then leads us into the the end of the Middle Ages and the Reformation period where they were examining the the doctrine of salvation more thoroughly. And and to quote uh, Ferguson, I thought he put this well, thus if the question, how is the spirit related to the father and son lay at the heart of the first great divide of Christendom, right? The East versus the West. The question, how does the Spirit apply the blessings of Christ to the individual came to lie at the heart of the second great divide, and that was Protestant versus the Roman Catholic Church. So, a question for you all, right? So that's kind of like a little intro. How did the medieval time period and the Roman Catholic Church understand salvation applying to an individual. How 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 did how did how did the the how, how, how did that put together? Was it like uh, works? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Under the category of the seven sacraments. Yep. Absolutely. Yes. Your innocence. Yes. That's used. Um, you get infused with grace, and you have to kind of keep that up, or you can lose it by committing sins. And yep. Like yeah. The different so, categories of sin. You got the venial and the mortal. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Nope. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I think I think that it, you guys are you guys are are, are are right on the right track. That um, uh, they got the seven sacraments, and the seven sacraments, each of those are meant to infuse grace, and by doing that, the person is becoming more righteous with that end time goal that eventually once they die, if there's any remaining sins, there's purgatory, they're cleansed, and then they are righteous, and then God justifies them, right, on that final day, right? So justification is not a present reality, right? Justification is a future reality based on the works that you do through the Spirit and the grace that's given in the seven sacraments. That's, that's the, like, Roman Catholic, right? So from an order of salvation standpoint, right, it starts with sacraments and works, penance, confession, right, that, that, that's all, it's all under, the, under the sacraments, that will eventually get you to that blessed assurance of justification when you're in heaven. That, that, that's the thought process. 
And so, um, but this became a point of contention, as, as we know, during the Reformation period. And so, um, uh, uh, in fact, the Roman Catholic Church so tied the Holy Spirit to the sacraments that that is how he was perceived to be confined. That the Spirit really just works through the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And that is what, what, what helps someone to that end time justification. And to quote Ferguson here, he says, The interpretation of how redemption was accomplished by Christ carries inevitable implications for the nature of its application to the individual. In this context, the leading feature of the theology of the Middle Ages was the linking of saving grace to the sacraments and therefore to the priestly ministry of the church in the process of being justified, like we talked about. The work of the Spirit was thus enclosed within the administration of the seven sacraments. Such sacramentalism produced a mechanism which certainly from the Reformation perspective denied the sovereign work of the Spirit which was not dependent on the administration of the rites of the church. Medieval theology was largely committed to a process of justification. Right, and so, and so we talked about, right, and we just kind of talked about, like, okay, what exactly does that mean and look like? So there is an, uh, if you think of an order of salvation, right, justification is at the end, right, and then you get these steps leading up to it. But what happened with Luther, right? And, 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 and I think we're familiar with the story, right? And, and, and in one sense, for Luther, it was a complete reversal of the order of salvation. Justification is not something at the very end, right? So like when he's looking at Romans 1, 16 and 17, he's thinking, all right, well, this is something that one day I will attain to, right? But what happens? He sees it as it really is that justification is a present reality and status for those who are in Christ. So then. And again, and I know this is a little bit of a you know church history, but it's always helpful for us to kind of put put some of this together. And and I and I liked what Ferguson said because then he goes to Calvin, to John Calvin, and says that for Calvin, he really um, uh, desacramentalizing de I can't even say it desacramentalizing the application of redemption. And what what he says was, but this was accompanied by a desacramentalizing of the application of redemption and a corresponding restoration of the role of the Spirit. Not that the sacraments were denuded of their power so much as subordinated to the joint action of the Word and the Spirit. So it's, it's not that the Spirit doesn't work through the two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. The Spirit does, but he is not confined to that only, right? That the, the Spirit is sovereign, right? And not simply confined to those. And, um, and that is why you'll see that like one of the you know, subtitles for Calvin was a theologian of the Holy Spirit, that he was so marked by that. So, so this is important. I think this is, this is, this is helpful to be on this track. 
The pattern by which the Spirit works is therefore of great significance. It has come to be discussed under the Latin rubric, Ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation. So I know I've said the Order of Salvation probably like a dozen times, and I have not defined it. And I know that can be like, you know, the sin of presenting, right? When you say something over, over and you don't define it. So, so I'm getting to that, all right? We're, we are, we're, we're, we're close, we're close. Um, so, so what exactly is it? And I, and I think his, his description here is helpful. When applied to the application of redemption, ordo salutis, or the order of salvation, denotes the orderly arrangement of the various aspects of salvation in its bestowal on men and women. So it is, it is this orderly arrangement, right? Or it's a logical order. In particular, it seeks to answer this question. In what ways are the various aspects of the application of redemption, right? Justification, regeneration, conversion, sanctification. How do they relate to one another. And so the discussions around this attempt to unpack the inner coherence and the logic of the Spirit's application of the work of Christ. So it's important when we talk about the order of salvation, it's not necessarily talking about something that's chronological, right? Like this took place and then this other one took place like a split second later, right? It's really talking about logical relationships when we talk about the order of salvation, right? And um, um, and and uh, Ferguson says this, in fact, is in fact a more ancient question than medieval discussions of it, and surfaces already in scripture. For example, in the controversies over the relationship between grace and law. Paul explicitly indicates that this salvation issue is also a Holy Spirit issue when he writes in Galatians 3.2. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Right? Because it's raising a question of how, in fact, does the Spirit apply the work of Christ to us as individuals. So, I'll just put a question out there, and this is not, um, uh, this, this, is, this is meant to be answered. Why do you think the order of salvation is important? Why do you think that is helpful or important for us as Christians to think about? Yeah, that it can help us kind of unpack and what that means and help us from an assurance standpoint? Absolutely. I think it grounds salvation in God and not us. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think... I, I, no, absolutely. And... Um, yeah, I think I... I, I totally agree. Um... And, and I think it helps us to understand exactly how those things relate to each other, right? How does the various aspects of the work of Christ work, relate to us? So, and so on your notes, you can see, so I, I pulled this off of uh, a Puritan's mind where um, uh, the order of salvation, and really it could go under this section or the next section we're going to go over which order. The golden chain, um, right? So we think of 
God's decree, uh, where God has decreed all things, and then predestinating, and sometimes predestination and election can, can go together, um, uh, where God predestines individuals um, to where, um, uh, uh, to, to their final outcome, right? Eternal life or, or eternal death, eternal damnation. Uh, election, those who are elected in Christ. Then you have um, the outward call, which is the gospel call, right? Which, which all people hear. And then you have the effectual or inward call, uh, which is also goes under the title of regen- regeneration, when the Spirit draws someone and gives them life, so that way they can then believe, right? And then you have, you see there, saving faith and repentance, or sometimes that'll just be go, go under the title conversion, right? Our, our response in turning to God. And then we see uh, things like justification and adoption, and um, uh, you, sometimes others will be included, like reconciliation. Some of these other other aspects of salvation will be included under under that. And then we see sanctification, death, and then that final glorification. And just seeing th- this logical order together, and that that really kind of leads us into under the next heading, which order. So then, Ferguson then says that when we talk about the order of salvation, even in the Reformation period and afterwards, that it's important uh, for us to, to understand that there, there have been cautions issued in regards to the, um, uh, this, this uh, you know, ordo salutis or the order of salvation. And he, and he helpfully engages us to think through that rightly. Well, what do I mean by that? So, um, uh, so he really goes back to William Perkins' work called The Golden Chain. And what Perkins does, right, if we were kind of to trace it back, he, he traced the causes of all the various aspects of redemption back, back to their fountain in the person of Christ and the eternal purposes of God. And there's a key focal text. I think it's helpful for us. Let's just turn there to Romans chapter 8. Right, the gold, you know, maybe you've heard that phrase, the golden chain of salvation. Um, and we'll, we'll just turn to, to Romans Romans chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read verses uh, 28 through 30. And uh, whoever gets there, um, go ahead and, and just read it out loud for us. Verses 28 through 30. Yes, excellent. So we can see, like it, so like you look in verse 30, right? We can see those whom he predestined are those whom he called, right? Same group, right? And the same ones that are called are the same ones that are justified. And the same ones that are justified are the same ones that are glorified. And, and so there is, this, um, there is this logic to Scripture, right, with this, um, one people that um, th- that uh, the Father has elected in the Son, right? And so they will all experience 
these aspects of salvation, right, as we see in verse 30. So, but there is this, there is this logical order. But Ferguson issues a pause for us, a, a, a pause of caution, and, and asking the question, is there a better way for us to understand this than simply the golden chain? And, and he spends some time kind of going through the history of some of those cautions, but I do want to just read a little bit. What exactly was the, the concern? And so he says, a broader concern is also relevant here. When expressed in terms of the model of a chain of causes and effects, the traditional order of salvation runs the danger of displacing Christ from the central place in salvation. The fruits of his work may be related to one another in the chain of cause and effect sequence, right? And, 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 that, and that is true, but rather, instead of that they should be viewed fundamentally in relation to the work of the Spirit in bringing us into union and communion with Christ himself. So what he's saying is, the danger is, we can, um, we can so just think about the order of salvation, which looks at the subjective aspects of salvation, right? What is it that we have experienced, right? And I guess we have an experienced election, right? But that's a subjective aspect, right? So, but then we have, you know, uh, the, the inward call. We have regeneration. We have saving, we have justification, all these things, right? But it can, it can displace that all of those benefits really come from union and communion with Christ, right? And so there's a danger, um, if you will, or at least a caution, that it's not wrong for us to think about logical sequence, but we must be careful because it can displace the central role that Christ has in salvation, and that we think about all these things really in regards to our union with Christ. Yes. Yep. Yep. And then, um, uh, like, that would be a, a key or focal text, exactly. And then um, you'll see that uh, uh, that people will expand that and then include, like, other texts to try to put a little bit more of a logical sequence and, and add a little bit more, like, regeneration uh, will be tied in with the inward calls. But, yes, Romans 8, I think, is, a like, a helpful key text, if you will. That was the one with, that Perkins kind of, like, uses a diving board for the golden chain. Yeah, yeah. No, you're good. No, you're good. Kind of. That the, the caution was that it became like a mathematical formula, right? And it was like, here, here's, here's how salvation works. You have this, right? And then you got saving faith. And then you got justification, then you got adoption, and then you're in the process of sanctification, then you got glorification. And all those things are true and good, but we're now talking about salvation apart from like, how we relate to Christ. When the emphasis from Scripture is we understand salvation in regards to our relationship to Christ. So again, it's not bad to talk about logical order. We just have to be careful that we can so talk about it where it, where it diminishes Christ, when really the priority should be 
to understand how we relate to Christ and then how those aspects of salvation become ours in him, if that makes sense. So what Ferguson's going to do is he's going to give us another way, another way for us to think about the order of salvation um, or the, uh, uh, the way the Spirit applies the work of Christ to us. No, e- excellent. I appreciate that because you're thinking it. That means like seven other people are thinking about it, so I'm glad you asked. Um, all right, so... Um, <clears throat> Actually, you know what? Um, does anyone else have any other questions or comments? Because that, that, that was really helpful. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, what's yeah. the difference? Sir? Can you explain outward call versus Yes. Yeah. So um, I don't remember the text in the Gospels, but Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And so in that text, what he's saying is, Many, um, many hear the outward call of the gospel, right? It goes out to many, but not everyone responds. And the point that Jesus was making when he said, many are called, but few are chosen. It's only those who are chosen uh, who, who are, uh, who are uh, the ones who will respond to the gospel call. And then when we look in like Romans 8.30 or Romans 8.28, when it talks about those who are called, it's, it's using that term call in a different sense than what Jesus meant in, in I, I, I want to say it's in Matthew, uh, where, where he said many are called. He's using it in the sense that there is an inward or effectual call of the Spirit that draws someone to Christ. And, and, and that'll sometimes go under, um, uh, um, uh, what's that? Yeah, oh yeah, 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 the special call. Yep, yep, exactly. Or, or the thought of regeneration, that it's the Spirit who now works Regenerates or gives someone life so that they now respond to the, the outward call of the gospel, right? When someone, when someone preaches the gospel. Yeah. I just really like what you said about um, that it's the logical order. It's not necessarily like we couldn't parse it out so chronologically in all these cases, like, you know, predestination, election, decree of God, that kind of all happens before us. And even like, yeah, inward call, saving faith, repentance, justification, adoption. Like, those could happen in a couple seconds, you know, and, like, all of it could happen right there, but it's it's distinct, and, yeah, it's it's very helpful to think about. I, my favorite part is that adoption. Well, I don't know. I really like yes. the adoption because it's like, you know, we could be justified, and God could say, okay, you're without sin, mm-hmm. you're, you, you know, you're, you're right with God, but, you know, go over there and, like, to the other side of the universe, but, yes. you know, he, like, yes. heirs, and he, he brings us into his family. Yes, it's a legal commitment to a familial relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's unreal. Yeah, in fact, I think, um, I can't remember his name now, uh, but he has a really famous book. I know it's not a good way to lead into it. But, uh, <laughs> but he basically says that is the height of uh, the Christian experience, is to be children of God. And uh, it's not John Stott, it's the other guy. So, but, Yeah. <laughs> Army, yeah. Going back to the, uh, the sacrament conversation. Yes. Was that the, uh, you know, how they, the way I understood it, they kind of contain the, sac- uh, the Holy Spirit's acts, uh, actions through that. Was that uh, the way they understood the Holy Spirit, or they didn't know the implication of the, the sacraments? Uh, so the, the, the way that I understand it is, 
that it is um, that the Holy Spirit, like that, that was how the Holy Spirit worked. It was through the priests, in the church, through the sacraments. And so like the Spirit is working through these different things, through penance and through, you know, confirmation and some of these other, you know, rites of the church. That, 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 that's, that's my understanding. Um, and I remember what it was. It was J.I. Packer and knowing God. Yeah. The other guy to John Stott. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to our, our last section. So union with Christ. And um, I will just tell you. So we're just going to uh, go into the water a little bit here. And then next week, uh, really, really get to think about this. It is uh, truly unfathomable the riches that we have um, in Christ or to think about us in relation to Christ by being identified with him. So, um, and like we read on, on the top of our handout, what Ferguson said I thought was really helpful. To be in Christ means to share in all that Christ has accomplished. Richard Gaffin has helpfully said, this being union with Christ is the central truth of salvation for Paul. The key soteriological reality comprising all others. He's just saying the key idea about salvation. While the phrase union with Christ does not occur in Paul or anywhere else in the New Testament, the reality is described in various ways and is particularly prominent in his use of the prepositional phrase in Christ or in the Lord, with other slight variations, especially with the preposition with, right? That we've been identified with Christ, that we've been buried with Christ, right? That, that, kind, of, that kind of language. And, and I'll, I'll just uh, read two quickly just to kind of like help our minds, all right, help, help think some, through some of these. In Ephesians 1.7, Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or in Romans 6.8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. In fact, Ferguson says that this, um, that this idea of union with Christ is used roughly 160 times by Paul in the New Testament. Ferguson goes so far to say that this is the heart and soul of the Spirit's ministry. Or to read another quote from Ferguson, he says, The central role of the Spirit is to reveal Christ and to unite us to him and to all those who participate in his body. So the Spirit's role relates to Christ and us to Christ. And I want to look at two key texts. Turn with me to John 14. Actually, keep a finger in Romans 8, because we're going to go back to Romans 8. But turn with me to John 14 first. This is really um, important stuff. I I want us to see this connection here. All right. So in John 14, I'll go ahead and read. We're going to read verses 15 through 18. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even what, or, or, or who, even who? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. What does Jesus say? I 
will come to you. So the Spirit comes, and we are to associate that with that Christ is going to come to them and not leave his disciples and his people as orphans, right? And Paul, I believe, picks up on this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, right? In Romans chapter 8, and and we'll read verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That union language, right? But then what does he say in verse 2? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, what? In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So in verse 2 we see that it is the spirit, the spirit of life, it is in, in the sense that the spirit is the one who gives life. The spirit who gives life has set you free, how? In Christ Jesus. So do we see how the spirit is working with union to Christ and then the application or, or the benefit of Christ's redemption to us. But, but look with me more in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, note, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to who? To Christ. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Do you see how Paul so easily can say the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, or in fact, it is Christ in you, right? It goes back to that idea of John 14. Christ does not leave his people, but he comes to them. How does Christ come to his people through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And it is the Spirit who brings us into union with Christ. I want to read something here from Ferguson that I thought was really helpful. The implication is that the model we employ for structuring the Spirit's ministry should be that of union with Christ. That should be priority and preeminent when we think about the order of salvation. Every facet of the application of Christ's work ought to be related to the way in which the Spirit unites us to Christ himself and viewed as directly issuing from personal fellowship with him. So it must be thought of in regards to the way in which the Spirit unites us to Christ himself and directly issuing from personal fellowship with the risen Christ. So as we we come to the end of union with Christ here, what I want to do is just, just whet the appetite just a hair for next week. We started with this already not yet tension. Right, And one of the things when we talk about the order of salvation, the golden chain, if you will, is we can talk about these in their full or fulfilled form. Right, Like all of these that we have, um, uh, uh, like regeneration, um, adoption, some of these other things, 
we don't bring this already not yet tension to this idea that the New Testament does. But when we think of union with Christ, it allows us to think through this idea of there's this already possessed aspect of salvation. And there's also this future not yet aspect. And I want to give you an example, or, or, or maybe two. Let me give you two. There's, there, there's more. Actually, there's, there's several, and they're really good, but you can read the book. Ferguson says, um, he gives one example with regeneration, right? So um, uh, that, that idea of new life, right? Being born of God, being born of the Spirit, right? Uh, or, or as it says in 1 John 3, to be born of God, right? That is a present reality. We've been given life um, through the Spirit. But then in Matthew 19, 28, it talks about the regeneration of all things. And really, it's this idea of new creation in its final form. So there is a sense in which the, the work that we have now as a result of regeneration is like a deposit, if you will, of that future full renovation or regeneration of all things, right? Or, that, or, or to use the language of Paul, right? he uses the language of new creation, right? Like in Galatians, what benefits is new creation. And it's, a, it's a, a deposit on this future reality. Or let me give you another one, sanctification, right? We have died with Christ. And in him, we are dead to sin, right? Where he can say, why, 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 why would we continue in sin if we have died to sin? So there's been this radical break with sin as a result of our union with Christ. But there's also this aspect in which we will be fully sanctified on that last day, like um, Paul, Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that it will develop progressively to its perfection. When Paul says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a sense in which it's all ready, but then there's another sense, even with sanctification, of that not yet perfected state. All right, so there's actually several more, and they would be really cool to talk about, but we do not have the time. So let's go ahead. We'll thank the Lord for getting to think about, thinking about the Spirit's role in the order of salvation, the history of that kind of thought, and really a better way to, for us to think about it, and that is specifically our union with Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would help these truths to resonate in our heart, to rejoice with what we have in Christ, and then work out those implications of this beautiful reality of the Spirit's work in bringing us into union with the risen Christ. Bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen.